Uh, well, just you heard a little bit about me and just to tell you a little more, I am fully persuaded that God, God has called me and others uh, to focus to a ministry that focuses on the intersection between faith and politics. And politics is often a very tough subject to broach in church because it tends to divide us. But I don't think that has to be the case. I assume that part of the reason, and we, I, we heard a little bit about that earlier, I assume that part of the reason that your leadership invited me here today um, was because Christians need to discuss more often how to approach politics more faithfully, how to approach civic engagement in general more faithfully. And my organization challenges both sides, right? So rest assured, I won't be telling you who to vote for. I won't be pretending that one side is purely angelic and the other, other is purely demonic. I have no interest in doing that. But I also won't be telling you exactly what you want to hear. The gospel doesn't pander to us like some of our politicians do. It convicts us and then encourages us. So there'll likely be moments of, dis uh, of discomfort. But I kindly ask for you to enter into to this word, not with a posture of self-defense, but with a spirit of self-examination. I am going to ask you to put your pride aside and par park any partisan hangups and just listen. Uh, I'm also, uh, I want to be very clear, I'm also not going to pretend. I spend my life talking about politics and social action and the importance of that. But I won't pretend that it's an ultimate thing. I won't pretend that it supersedes our obligation to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what we should be doing first. And foremost, well, let's start with scripture. Uh, the scripture today comes from Ephesians 4, verses 14 and 15. That's Ephesians 4, verses 14 and 15. And it reads, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of, of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, speaking the truth in love. Today's subject is about engaging the socio-political space with biblical fidelity. And I won't hide the ball. The lesson today, based on biblical doctrine, is that we can't engage the political space faithfully without love and truth. Or put another way, without justice and moral order. Yes, even as a matter of common grace, there can be no redemptive outcome, no restorative result without that combination. And therefore, the theories we embrace and the tactics we use must fit within that framework. As we search for answers to the problems that afflict our society today, I'm afraid that too many Christians are being tossed back and forth by the waves of false cultural doctrine and blown here and there by the winds of pop culture prescriptions. We get exposed to a trending topic or a fancy theory in academia, and we begin to put our faith into perspectives and ideologies that may sound good, or that may flatter us, but they don't actually work. They're not true. 
They can show no proof of concept, and more importantly, they aren't biblical. Yet instill, based on the cultural identity of the messenger uh, or the political party of origin, we follow that which is completely unsubstantiated. So I would suggest that when it comes to political engagement, if the postmodernists are going to have their say, if the rugged individualists will say what they want, if the hyper-woke identitarians will throw in their two cents, then the people of God must have something to say too. And whatever we say, we should make sure that we're speaking the truth in love. I start off with the question, are Christians known for speaking the truth in love in the public square today? On May 25th at approximately 8.12 in the evening Central Standard Time in the south central portion of Minneapolis, Minnesota, 46-year-old George Floyd was arrested for allegedly using a counterfeit bill to purchase cigarettes. His face was subsequently pressed against the blacktop with a knee wedged in his neck, and he told officers that he couldn't breathe. He cried out for his mother, and he died. He was killed over a $20 bill, and five image bearers lost a father. And the veneer of impartiality was removed from parts of the American justice system. Now, I thank God for many of the peaceful protests that even people of faith participated in. I commend that. But also we saw that in response to the killing of George Floyd, some groups like the groups in Portland, Oregon, engaged in all manner of performative stunts, unapproved by the community that was actually in harm's way. They rioted, they looted, they set the city ablaze and even assaulted some police officers, who were, who, police officers who were taking every measure to deal with them sensibly. Another group in Chicago smashed the doors of the Ronald McDonald House with families of sick children still inside in what they claimed was an act on behalf of social justice. Christians should be able to look at the killing of George Floyd and realize that law and order by themselves are insufficient. That order must be coupled with justice. Christians should be able to look at the chaos in Portland, Oregon, and realize that that conception of social justice is insufficient. That social justice must be coupled with moral order. Not passivity, not respectability, but unconditional standards that adhere to absolute truth. What do we have to say as a church? I don't have to tell you that we're living in a tumultuous sociopolitical moment where every issue has to be politicized and polarized, common ground is scarce, and far too many Christians are mere partisans with nothing unique or particularly thoughtful to say to add to the discourse, we're just red or blue soldiers that add more vitriol to the discourse. A large number of us have outsourced our public witness to political parties and ideological tribes, and as a consequence, we've become willfully gullible happy to accept the false and arbitrary narratives constructed by well-paid sophists in talking point factories. 
They give us the rhetoric and the alibis to dismiss some of the people and some of the things that God loves without pricking our conscience. I don't have to do racial justice because that's always Marxism. I don't have to stand up for the unborn because because pro-lifers only want to control women. They don't really care. That's what they tell us. We go along with it. And so we only represent about half of the gospel from time to time. We treat these narratives like factual reality. But reality is nuanced. And our narratives rarely are. A nuanced narrative would force us to admit that our opponents might actually have a point sometimes and that we're not without fault. Instead of telling the truth in love, we tell the truth insofar as it impugns our opponents and serves our interests and cultural preferences. Lord, have mercy on our souls for being so fickle as to praise a righteous and just God in church and then step out of the church into the civic square and praise and put our faith in lesser gods and lesser institutions. We've been given the truth. We've been given a framework for engaging our neighbors and society at large. And even in the most difficult times, that truth compels us to speak the truth in love. The conversation about engaging politics to better society inevitably must address what teachings we follow and what methods we'll employ to achieve our objectives. Today, many Christians have been seduced by ideologies that are made by human hands and quite frankly can't withstand biblical scrutiny. The Bible speaks to this. In Ephesians 4, Paul is talking to the church of Ephesus. This was known as the persevering church. Ephesus had endured a lot of suffering, and at this time they had false prophets who were trying to infiltrate the church with false teachings. Earlier in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about being mature, maturity within the church. And when he talks about being mature, he's talking about growth in mind, growth in understanding, growth in knowledge of the truth, and growth in moral character. So he says that once we grow in moral character, once we grow in knowledge of the truth, then we will no longer be infants, meaning we will no longer be so malleable, we won't be so impressionable, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. What Paul is saying right here is that mature Christians are not easily deceived that these false teachers would not be able to indoctrinate mature Christians because mature Christians know what they believe. They know what they stand for. Regardless of what false teachings are prominent, regardless of what popular culture is telling you, regardless of what you are, how much you are suffering and who's making you suffer, Christians should always be able to speak the truth in love. Christians should never let their circumstances or the tactics of their opponents dictate who they are. Everyone wants to claim the civil rights movement today, but I can tell that very few people truly understood one of the guiding uh, principles of the civil rights movement. Yes, it was about changing systems. Yes, it was about changing policy, but there was something that was much more important than that. And that was the understanding that regardless of what you were going through, 
regardless of how terrible you thought your political opponent was, that you could never allow your opponent to have a negative impact on your spirit. You could win every debate. You could win every policy conversation. But if you allowed your opponent to have a negative impact on your spirit, you lost everything. People quote MLK. But very, very few people want to talk about how MLK believed that it was better to die than to hate your enemy. We need to understand that. We need to always be able to speak the truth in love. This ju doesn't just apply to our personal relationships, but it also applies to our cultural and political interactions. Political and social ideologies are not all bad. You can decide whether being progressive or conservative on a certain issue is best in a given situation. I'll leave that up to you. But one thing I can tell you about both sides is they are not the gospel. That they are not infallible. We have to stop defending our parties and our ideological tribes as if they are inerrant because they are not. The truth is that the most prominent ideologies in America often separate love and truth as if they are in conflict, as if they are somehow mutually exclusive. One side is supposedly all about love, while the other side claims to be about truth, and Christians are told that we have to choose between the two. Well, I come to tell you today that uh, a Christian can choose a political party, but a Christian cannot choose between love and truth. They are not in conflict. They are interdependent. Tim Keller once said that love without truth is sentimentality, meaning that it's overly emotional, that it's lacking in substance, and that truth without love is harshness. It's mean. It's uncompassionate. These ideologies tend to either be lacking in love or lacking in truth. And as a result, when it comes to political ideology, to be conservative or progressive at all times on every single issue is not only intellectually lazy and easily manipulated, but I would say that it's not faithful. Ideological conservatism and theological conservatism are not always the same thing. The far left conception of social justice is not always consistent with a biblical understanding. If we are conservative, when the issue calls for change and the dismantling of old prejudice structures, then we're helping to maintain injustice. If we're progressive, when the moment calls for the regeneration or, preser or, or preservation of moral order, then we are complicit in society's rejection of the truth. A Christian cannot simply follow behind an ideological tribe or a political party. We must be supplying both of them with heavy doses of love and truth if we're going to be who we've been called to be. Let's talk about this love and social concern side of the conversation. It should pain us that other communities can legitimately question whether or not they are loved by Christians or, legit, or legitimately question whether the Christian community will treat them fairly. Now, we know that love does not guarantee agreement or affirmation, but it does call us to be concerned about the well-being of others. 
You can understand systematic theology. You can memorize the entire Bible. But if you are unloving and uncompassionate, then you are not Christ-like. This is where sometimes conservatives can run into trouble. We've been told to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we can't do that if we're not willing to advocate for our neighbor's well-being and to protect their human dignity. That's all a biblical definition of, of social justice is. According to the great commandment, if you would want justice for yourself, if you would seek justice for yourself, then you must want it and you must seek it for others. If we truly love our neighbor, we will be socially concerned. And that social concern won't just be a sentiment. It won't just be God bless their hearts. It'll be active and it will involve self-sacrifice. You see, we supposedly have Christians who are against social justice, and I'm all with you. There are distorted versions of social justice. But I don't believe that anybody is against social justice. I think that everyone is for social justice. Some of us just limit it to who we care about and deny it to others because it would inconvenience us. Let me tell you what I mean. No one here today is going to sit around and watch someone in their family be unjustly imprisoned if there was something they could do about it. No one's going to do that. No one here today would allow the children in their neighborhood to drink lead-poisoned water if there was something they could do about it. No one. And why is that? It's because we believe in social justice. We believe that there's a certain standard by which everyone should be treated based on the Imago Dei, based on their human dignity. But we have to realize that justice is harder than charity. There's a reason that people will give you charity long before they give you justice. Because charity, while it is good, but charity can be distant, and with charity, the giver is in control of how much they give and how much it will impact them. Justice, on the other hand, is either given fully or it's not given at all. It's a God standard. It threatens to disrupt the very systems and societal arrangements that benefit us. At some point, justice demands a conflict with self-interest. And that's what so many of us run from. It dismantles the very podium and platforms which we place our pride and stand atop to look down on others. There is no social renewal without love and social concern. Without them, we'll only create a harsh, hypocritical society that excludes and marginalizes other groups. Let's go to the other side. Let's talk about truth and moral order. In Ephesians 4.15, the term speak the truth comes from the Greek word that refers to teaching or professing the truth, often as it relates to doctrine. This is not subjective. I'm sorry to tell you, everyone does not have their own separate individual truth. To speak the truth means to profess right doctrine or to be honest in how we recount events. We have to understand that we serve a God of moral order. God's truth provides us with direction and it provides us with structure. In an ever-changing world, God's word and God's truth 
is unchanging. In urban settings, as we are here, we know that a lot of people are striving to be as progressive as they can be. And this is where I think progressives tend to run into trouble. To move forward and to fix things can be good. And I think that's the general definition of people who are progressive. I think that's what they mean. But being progressive is not the answer to every situation. If you're on the edge of a cliff, to progress or to even lean forward probably isn't such a good idea. It's also a bad idea if you're already headed in the wrong direction. Sometimes God is asking us to stand firm on his word or to preserve things and institutions that he has already established as good. Modern thought tells us that we can improve everything, but God's truth cannot be improved. One way that I like to tell people to think about God's word is think about it like a Picasso. You cannot improve a Picasso, right? You can, only, you can only deface a Picasso, right? If you go up to a masterpiece with your brush or some type of erasing agent, I don't care how great of an artist you think you are, if you add one thing or you take anything away from that Picasso, you have not made it better, you have made it worse. That's the same thing with God's word. If you add anything to God's word, if you take anything away from God's word, you have not made it better. You have defaced God's word. God doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't need us to improve or evolve his truth. Sometimes what seems good and pleasant to us is really destructive. Sometimes God is calling us to obedience and to self-denial. That's one thing progressives don't want to talk about, self-denial. It is hard to be obedient and deny self in a society when you have an ethic that says individual expression is sovereign. Can Christians fully embrace this kind of philosophy and be, and be faithful? It might be flattering, but it won't get an endorsement here. Even if you only want to read the New Testament, even if you only wanted to read the red letters, you won't find Jesus endorsing a human-centered, self-dictated truth or reality. This book here talk tells us to die to self and to be crucified with Christ. This book is, this book is consistently telling us about self-sacrifice, not self-indulgence. Am I saying that no one can be Politically progressive, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is that when you're in conflict with Christianity, Christianity must override your progressivism. Because as is uh, conservatism, progressivism is also flawed. And Christians have to see the flaws in both sides of this conversation. We cannot exchange truth for confusion and more order for chaos. Jesus provided us with a model for social renewal that was concerned about marginalized individuals in society. And we must pursue the same course. But he didn't simply patronize people with sentimentality. He attended to them with love and truth. We can go to John 8. In the case of the adulterous woman who is about to be stoned, he tells her, go. 
Him telling her go is his love liberating her from these hypocrites who are intent on hurting her. He's releasing her from this societal bondage. But he doesn't stop there. He also says, sin no more. Because the other half of the truth was that she would never be completely free until her heart changed, until she turned from her sin. Similarly, earlier in John 5, the lame man was told to stand up and walk, and then he was later told to stop sinning. The woman wasn't only a victim of external bondage, but also her own internal bondage. The man's infirmity wasn't just an outward disability. There was another matter that he had to deal with, with inward, by inward transformation. There's a similar theme if you look closely in Exodus. God delivered the Hebrews from Pharaoh's hand, but he doesn't say go off and live happily ever after. That's just not how it happens. He gives them the law and he demands their obedience. After he frees his people, he chastises them. Yes, God is a liberator, but he's also a father that requires more order from the liberated. He brings wrath upon the oppressor and calls his children to self-denial so that they don't become the oppressor. But too many Christians have embraced ideologies that are keen on identifying how others have sinned against us while, binding, uh, while, while uh, blinding us to how we've been devoured by our own sin. If the adulterous woman were here today, one side of the church would say, slay girl. Uh, one side of the church would say, stone her for she has broken the law. The other side would say, slay queen, live your truth. And both would be leaving her in chains. Both would be leaving her imprisoned. That was not the pedagogic creed of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He taught that the unjust and disobedient would receive God's wrath. And that Christian love is unconditional, but it's not without discernment. It's not without critique. There is a way that seems right to man, but ends in death. It's time to tighten up our philosophies, our ideologies, and our methodologies and adhere to a gospel standard. Not a progressive standard, not a conservative standard, a biblical worldview, a biblical standard. And in conclusion, I hope that we can all look around and see that people are suffering that the poor are being displaced from urban centers and can't live in many big progressive cities unless they're living on the streets. People in back row America are dying from deaths of despair, like overdoses and suicides at unprecedented rates. And we act like we need to know their political affiliation before we love them. Tell me who you voted for and I might consider your pain. But if you give the wrong answer, well, then you probably brought it upon yourself. A faithful political witness can come in many different forms, but it can't be self-absorbed. It can't be vengeful, vengeful. It can never be bent on humiliating our political opponents or enjoying their agony. And we all know from the shows that we watch, the people that we follow on social media, we are often entertained by that. 
entertained by the confirmation bias, entertained by seeing the people that we don't like in pain, seeing them humiliated. That's not biblical. What, I, what I'm trying to do today is challenge you to have the courage to speak the truth in love, knowing full well that it won't be easy, knowing full well that you won't get a lot of applause for combining social justice and moral order. When you're trying to love your neighbor through social action, there will be some conservatives that will almost uh, certainly call you a social justice warrior or a Marxist. But I'm coming here to tell you, do it anyway. When you're telling the world that we as individuals are not the sum of our feelings and our desires, that we're much more and that our actions must abide by the truth. Instead of trying to construct the truth around our proclivities, some progressives will certainly call you hateful and, and intolerant. But I'm here to tell you today, do it anyway. When you attempt to hold America accountable for its misdeeds, past and present, there are some nationalists that will tell you that you are unpatriotic. But I have come today to say, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, do it anyway. We are not called to, valid, to be validated or affirmed by, pop, by the popular opinion of our time. We are called to be prophetic, prophetic in the moment in, when, in which God chose to place us. If you limit your public witness to what is allowed by progressivism or what's allowed by conservatism, you are more than remiss. You are leaving out at least half of the gospel from the conversations that we need to have. There are enough conservatives who don't want to be compassionate. There are enough progressives who don't want to talk about the truth. They don't need Christians to add to that conversation. They need Christians to be Christian first. God bless you. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can come together under your word and see that your word gives us common ground, even in a moment when common ground is scarce. That your word can draw together people from all sides of the spectrum. It can go, draw together people in different parties because we know that what's going on is important, but it's not an ultimate thing. And so we pray, Lord, that you help your people see past the colors, see past D's and R's to see each other, to see brothers and sisters in Christ and to see neighbors that need our help, that we need one another. So, Lord, we surrender our public witness to you. We surrender everything we have to you, that we may be representatives of you in the public square. That when people see us and they see our witness, they see God's will. They see God's character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.